Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 10, At the Walls of Mantua. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode of Napoleon knocking out the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia from the War of the First Coalition with his Montanati campaign, now leaving only the Austrian contingent left in Italy, standing between him and total victory for France. It also occurred to me that over the past few days that in describing a lot of the geographical locations on his campaigns, streets, towns, rivers, mountain passes, etc., I haven't exactly been providing the greatest visual cues on where a lot of these places are, unless you have a good understanding of Western European geography. A picture may not always be worth a thousand words, but it sure as hell can help in getting an average understanding of where the River Po flows to and from. But this is my first podcast series, and this series is my first in the podcast, so these are the growing pains that I'm working through. Nothing is near perfect yet, if it ever will be, but just know... That as I'm in the process of designing a website, all of these maps and visuals will be posted to the site, including retroactively to previous episodes, so it can help add further context when I'm describing Napoleon's campaigns, as well as these locations for the campaigns. My goal, well, my hope, is to have it all done by the time Napoleon becomes emperor, but if we can get it done sooner, fantastic. So, apologies to anyone who has to go back and Google map all of these places, since I clearly didn't provide any, but such as life, and I promise those visuals are in the process of coming soon. And I can assure you that as we move on to the next Titan, we'll have a much smoother process. Okay, so with that established, on with the show. As soon as the ink was drying on the armistice of Cherasco, which knocked Piedmont out of the war, Napoleon began to eye up the rest of northern Italy. Before he had even defeated the remaining Austrian forces, Napoleon, in an example of his later hubris, began to dream of how he could use his conquered lands to enrich France, with the idea being that the great conqueror, Napoleon Bonaparte, had brought forth these cultured riches back to the motherland. He sent surveyors to the corners of Italy to basically tally up what paintings, valuables, and artifacts they could seize, send back to France, and display in a sort of victory museum to demonstrate the beauty of foreign art to the average citizen, many of whom likely would have only heard about them in a book. They wanted to show off the marvel from every corner of Europe in the center of Paris, bringing the outside world back home. Now, this museum would go by a few names after it was completed, but today we call it the Louvre. And, as I'm sure many are aware, it is still filled with many of those looted artifacts from Napoleon's campaigns in Italy and elsewhere. But wait, howdy historian, I thought you said Napoleon put in strict edicts against looting with his soldiers. Well, yes he did, and yes I did, but you see, Napoleon is a perfect example of the old adage, do as I say, not as I do. He didn't want his men looting the average citizen, going into their homes and forcing quarters, but those 1,500-year-old marble statues adorning the Milanian palace? Well, those are fair game, and they're likely still sitting at the Louvre today. And now that he was in Italy, a place he had 
close ties to being from Corsica, as well as having a good knowledge of the local art, well, let's just say that he was like a child in a candy store. Now we'll get into Napoleon's fascination, see, obsession, with art looting, as well as the cultural property he sees from numerous countries and numerous regions a little later on. And I'm probably going to dedicate an entire supplemental episode to it because, well, it's still a controversial issue to this day. Since, you know, a lot of this stolen stuff is still sitting in Paris 200 years later, while some ignorant 20-year-old foreign exchange student unironically poses for a selfie in front of these artifacts to show off the quote-unquote culture. Needless to say, of the many black marks against Napoleon, this is one of the many that are still being fought over to this day. But I digress. Just know that Napoleon's fascination with art looting, Dan being the bibliophile that he was, scripture hoarding likely began in his first campaign in Italy. But fear not, we'll return here because that fascination is going to grow into a full-blown obsession very shortly. Anyway, as he was sending off men to size up the loot across Italy, Napoleon was in the process of finalizing his battle plans to take on the Austrians. Understanding that he would need to use deception in this plan, Napoleon began to calculate the logistics he would require as he planned the difficult task of moving his entire army across the River Po, heading north. The Austrian General Bouillou was stationed along the tributary of the Po and Ticino rivers, the goal being of protecting the vitally important Milan. With his men focusing on the small hamlet town of Valenza, expecting that to be the most logical place of a French advance from their reported position, Napoleon knew that he could use this to his advantage. Instead of attacking the Austrians via Valenza, which is what they expected, Napoleon decided to follow the Po horizontally to Piacenza, from where he could launch his cross-river assault and threaten Milan directly. But if Napoleon was to be successful in this strategy, he would need to do so in record time. Bouillou was a mere one-day march from Piacenza, and Napoleon's forces were at least two days away. Sending Generals Massena and Sarouillet to Valenza to deceive the Austrians, as well as General Agarro in a central position between Valenza and Piacenza to add another wrinkle, Napoleon dashed his men to Piacenza, from where they would make their daring crossing of the River Po and begin their march on Milan. Promising shoes and riches upon their victory, he was able to force his men to make the journey in less than two days. The month of May 1796 was beginning just as Napoleon had hoped. One more victory, he wrote to director Lazar Cano, and we are the masters of Italy. Using ferries to transport up to 500 men at a time across the river, Napoleon's army successfully crossed and marched into Piacenza unopposed. Now Piacenza, then at the time a part of the Duchy of Parma and Piacenza, was a neutral city, not at war with either Austria or France, and Napoleon entering it was technically a breach in the rules of war. But many in the duchy were hostile towards the French, and Napoleon wanted to make sure he eliminated any potential enemies before they had a chance to become one. So signing an armistice with the Duke of Parma, Napoleon, as he was one to do, sent back paintings to Paris by artists such as Michelangelo and Correggio, manuscripts written by Virgil, and exotic flora and fauna, which could be studied back home. Then if you remember back to our episode on Josephine, you'll remember that Napoleon would often send her exotic rose cultivars as gifts on his expeditions, and his first campaign in Italy began that tradition. Napoleon and his generals also requisitioned horses and carriages to help transport the cannons they were about to deploy on the Austrian army, and they wouldn't need to wait long to do so. When the Austrians received official word that the French had entered Piacenza, they were forced to retreat back to Milan in order to protect the city. To get there, they would pass through the small city of Lodi, and it was here that Napoleon, now with Massena back in tow, would meet them to engage on the 10th of May, 
Led by Hussar and Grenadier regiments under another future marshal, General Jean Lan, the French chased the Austrian rearguard through the town in the late morning, but were halted when they approached the main bridge which straddled the Adda River. The bridge, a critical artery in crossing the river and leading into Milan, was defended by nine battalions of infantry and 14 guns, along with four squadrons of Neapolitan cavalry, but all of these soldiers were exhausted from the hasty retreat towards Milan, and few were in fighting shape, and even fewer wanted to fight at all. Despite this, the Austrian general in charge, General Karl Sebettendorf, ordered his men to defend the bridge until nightfall and to prevent the French from crossing at all costs. Tired and likely out of options, many of the Austrian soldiers attempted to destroy the bridge, but the French, knowing that being unable to cross the bridge would prevent them from catching Beaulieu's main army, stationed cannons on the length of the bridge and fired on the Austrians to prevent them from destroying it. Napoleon himself requisitioned two cannons and fired on the enemy, leading to some of his troops calling him Le Petit Caporal, or the Little Corporal. Now, while this story is likely apocryphal, the idea of a commanding general getting his boots dirty and firing on the enemy position, a job typically reserved for the lower ranks, began to add to the Napoleonic legend. But in any event, Napoleon and his men had to hold their position until the late afternoon, as they didn't have the men necessary to make a complete advance across the bridge, and they didn't have the reserves to further enforce it. Once the reinforcements did arrive by 5 p.m., however, Napoleon ordered the heavy guns stationed along the riverbanks and to fire on the Austrian position. At 6 p.m., with other forces scattered around the city to chase out any Austrian holdouts, he ordered the 27th and 29th Légeret demi-brigades to charge the bridge in a near-suicidal assault directly into the heart of the enemy fire. But his men, seeing their commanding general loading cannons to prevent the enemy from destroying their only way to a quick victory, did so regardless. After the Austrians fired a salvo that caused a number of casualties, the French advance wavered for a brief moment, and some of the soldiers even jumped into the river to avoid further fire. Many other ordinary generals at this point likely would have called their men back, understanding the impossible situation that they faced. After all, it was really a suicidal mission. But France did not have ordinary generals. And it was at this point that a number of the senior officers, including Massena, Lannes, Berthier, Jean-Baptiste Servoni, and Claude Delamier rushed to the head of the column and led the men forward. Again. Many of the French soldiers who had jumped over the bridge then began firing their rifles from underneath it. Another element of attack the Austrians were unable to ward off and were caught completely by surprise. Outnumbered, exhausted, and utterly demoralized, Sabatendorf ordered a hasty retreat and much of the army was able to escape thanks to the oncoming nightfall. Now, the Battle of Lodi was a French victory, but it wasn't as decisive as the legend that surrounds it has made it out to be. The French lost close to 1,000 men while the Austrians suffered over 3,000, but Napoleon had only faced their rear guard, and the majority of their forces were able to escape. In Napoleon's mind, though, it didn't really matter. Lodi was all the validation that he needed that he was destined for greatness. I no longer regard myself as a simple general, he later wrote of the victory at Lodi, but as a man called up to decide the fate of peoples. Humility, people. But it wasn't just Napoleon. Some of the greatest generals in Napoleon's army, and indeed French history, three of them future marshals, led from the front, with grapeshot hissing past their ears. Much of their future destinies began here, that Lodi, crossing a bridge over a shallow river, and their display of complete disregard for life, known to history as the French Fury, by the way, 
became legendary during the Napoleonic Wars, as it was nearly unheard of at the time in 19th century Western European warfare. It shocked many of those who fought against it, untrained at what to do to stop an onslaught of men who showed no fear of the certain death they would face, and led to many decisive engagements in the battles ahead, including this one. Now, while the Austrian army was saved after Lodi, their goal of keeping Milan was not. Five days after the battle, Napoleon was in Milan, and the Austrians were on their way to the heavily fortified city of Mantua. Napoleon entered to a hero's welcome, if tempered only by the cautious optimism the Milanese harbored towards him. They were happy the Austrians were gone, yes, but what could they come to expect from their new French overlords? Many of the educated members of the Milanese society welcomed the French and their revolutionary ideals, hoping to spread them throughout the conservative Italian peninsula. But, much like in the provincial provinces of France, many of the rural peasantry came to regard the French forces as nothing more than atheist occupiers, no better than the Austrians they had just expelled. In any event, Napoleon and his officers celebrated lavishly. Staying at the elegant Palazzo Servolini, the French commanders partied long into the night, conversing with philosophers, artists, politicians, and anyone of high society who wanted to join their company. Napoleon lived like a king, something he would grow accustomed to over the next few years. Even still, though, he did his best to espouse the ideas of the French Revolution, declaring the creation of the Lombardic Republic to be ruled by French-friendly Jacobini, or Jacobins, and promoted the creation of political clubs throughout the city. He made improvements to the educational institutions, eliminated tariffs to help stimulate the economy, and ended noble assemblies, which had extended feudal privileges for centuries. Napoleon's stays in Italy also helped to develop the sense of Italian nationalism that had been missing since, well, the days of the Roman Empire. As I mentioned a few episodes back, Italy at this point was a collection of city-states, duchies, federations, and kingdoms, and the concept of quote-unquote Italy was more a mindset rather than a political reality. Napoleon's creation of French sister republics on the peninsula would help to inspire that sense of Italian unification not seen in over a thousand years. Still, the Italians were more receptive to their French occupiers than they were to the Austrian ones. There were still some small uprisings in the more Catholic regions. Priests, for example, rose up in rebellion in Pavia on May 23rd, and the French also met resistance in the small village of Benasco. But after killing over 100 of the peasants and essentially burning the town to the ground, rebellions became minimal thereafter. This was likely because the French's revolutionary governments that they installed in the peninsula were more urban-focused, and thus their influence was felt more in the cities than in the more conservative rural areas. Rebelling just didn't seem like a good use of time and resources if the way of life was not greatly impeded. Also, the French had made their repercussions pretty clear should any further resistance be attempted. And indeed, Napoleon, while brutal in some of his reprisals for resistance, did feel a sort of moral empathy for the victims. He later wrote of the raising of Benasco that it was a horrible sight to witness, but necessary in order to instill a sense of order among the conquered. If you make war, wage it with energy and severity. It is the only means of making it shorter and consequently less deplorable for mankind he would write in 1799. With his iron fisting known throughout Italy now, Napoleon was able to implement, see, impose, these sister governments throughout the peninsula with relative impunity. And the Lombardic Republic would be the first in a laundry list of client states to be installed in Italy over the next 20 years. But even in declaring these governments in borderline kingly fashion, Napoleon did still need to answer to his bosses back in France. Because... He did still have bosses back in France, remember? And while he was basking in the beautiful Milanese sun, 
the job in Italy was far from over. Austria was just over the bend, heavily fortified, awaiting Napoleon in Mantua. Always the humble general, never giving in to his hubris, Napoleon wrote back to the directory from Milan that if he could take Mantua, he could be in the heart of Germany in Dudecad, two weeks in the Republican 10-day calendar. He lied about the amount of troops he lost at Lodi and exaggerated the amount his men killed. A common practice during any war, as I'm sure we've all seen with the wildly differing casualty numbers in the Ukrainian war, depending on who's providing that data. But Napoleon was well known to take his exaggeration, see outright lies, to lofty extremes in order to further inflate his personal prestige. But his lies notwithstanding, the news of Napoleon's victory was met with adulation by the French public and tepid approval from the directory. You see, they could deal with Napoleon defeating the lowly Piedmontese, but now the Austrians too? Who does this guy think he is? Well, Napoleon, as I'm sure we've all seen and are well aware of by now, knew who he was and what his worth was. The Directory, fearing that he was becoming far more powerful than they could hope to contain, wanted to share glory in his victories in Italy, ostensibly to temper the idea that he was doing this by his own personal genius rather than from the ordering of the Directory. When Napoleon asked for 15,000 men to help lead his next campaign on Mantua, the Directory agreed, but only if he would share command with General François Etienne de Kellerman, an order which he bluntly refused. Napoleon had little respect for Kellerman, regarding him as a German, and threatened to resign should he be sent with his unit under command. And it's ironic because Kellerman would soon become one of Napoleon's most able and trusted cavalry generals. It's funny how that works out. But while Napoleon didn't exactly have much respect for Kellerman at the time, it wasn't he who he was fighting with. Napoleon, by this point, was filled to the brim with confidence and delusions of providence, and he was becoming to despise the directory. As we mentioned over the previous few episodes, he played his cards close to the best. He didn't want to overstep his authority too much, but his writings back to Paris made it increasingly clear that he had about as much respect for the directory as he had for the neutrality of Parma. That is to say, little to any at all. The directory had many of these letters censored when they were published in the Parisian newspapers, fearing that a general becoming too powerful could ultimately lead to disaster. Yes, they feared his coup plotting, but the treason of General de Maurier back in 1793 was also still fresh in the director's mind, many of whom had served in the National Assembly, and they also worried that enticing offers from the coalition forces to Napoleon, see copious amounts of money, could persuade anyone. And so they never wanted to afford too much power in any one single general, but they also didn't want to reprimand him too harshly either. The Directory's short-term concerns were outweighed by their long-term view of winning the war. If they wanted to expand French influence and revolutionary ideals throughout the continent, they needed to defeat Austria, which was becoming increasingly difficult on their supposed main front on the France-Austrian border. And so, whether they liked it or not, they had to turn their attention to Italy. Napoleon's preparations for his besiegement of Mantua began as soon as Milan was secured. In between writing letters back to the directory and to Josephine, he was at this point believing she was pregnant while she was still deep in her affair with Hippolyte Charles, Napoleon began to gather his troops to chase down the retreating Austrian forces. When the French were slowed by the aforementioned revolts in Pavia and Bonasco, it gave the Austrians time to pull back behind the Mincio, putting in strong patrols west of the river, and began to prepare the fortress of Mantua to sustain a long siege, something they anticipated would be coming from the French forces once they, too, crossed the Mincio. Crossing the Mincio, like the Po, 
would prove to be a difficult task, as the snowmelt from the Alps created strong flows and helped to conceal troop movements. It also made fording the river difficult, and thus the four bridges which headed towards Mantua were of even more vital importance. The four bridges were, in order, Ambrichetia, Borghetto, Goito, and Rivalta. Napoleon believed the one in Borghetto would provide the best crossing point to reach Mantua. Gan, in another move of deception, ordered a feint attack on the bridge at Pescheria. Napoleon then held his main forces well west of the Mincio to hide his true intentions, and then he sent his generals to begin gathering boats to assist in the crossing. Just as Napoleon had anticipated, Austrian General Bouillou began to cordon the defenses between the Pescheria and the Goito, completely abandoning the bridge defenses at Borghetto. Further confusing matters, and in another break for Napoleon's forces, Beaulieu became ill on May 29th, meaning that his orders had to be sent through numerous subordinates, which led to a mishmash of commands that left the defending forces in complete disarray. And Napoleon, as fate would have it, decided to push his main assault on the next day, May 30th, with a force of 31,000 men. Nagajo's 6,100 men attacking from the left flank, General Kilmain's 6,300 men from the center with Massenis 9,500 behind him in reserve, and Sahuye's 9,100 attacking from the right flank, needing to cover the most amount of ground. By 9 a.m., the French forces reached the Borghetto Bridge. The Austrians, still in disarray from the lack of coordinated orders, only had two small battalions to defend the crossing. And while they did put up a spirited defense, their reserves arrived too late and were too few in number to begin with, and they were soon retreating towards the small village of Baleggio, southeast of the bridge. While the French were able to clear the town fairly easily, the Austrians did send in a small team of Hussar cavalrymen to counterattack, and believe it or not, they nearly captured Napoleon. This incident led Napoleon to take his personal security a little bit more seriously, forming a cavalry bodyguard unit called the Geats, with Bessaghe in charge of it. Now this unit would eventually evolve into the Chasseurs à Cheval of the Imperial Guard, one of the most formidable cavalry units under Napoleon's personal command, and you can bet that they will make a few appearances later on in this podcast. The Austrians would attempt a few other small skirmishes to slow the French advance, but they were unable to take back the town or the bridge, meaning that the route to Mantua, the real prize, was now completely undefended. Each side lost about 500 men, but the French could afford the casualties. The Austrians could not. The Austrians now needed to send all their available forces back to Mantua to defend it, or else they knew their extended stay in Italy would be coming to an abrupt end. Understanding the stark reality, over the next month, Austria would receive new commanders and reinforcements from their coalition allies, understanding that their tactics would have to change lest they be forced back across the border into Austria. The struggle for Mantua would be the fiercest of the campaign yet, and would last well over eight months. After the Battle of Borghetto, General Beaulieu was finally, or rather mercifully, relieved of his command and was replaced with Field Marshal Dagobert von Wemser, another man who was also in his 70s and had won his reputation in the Seven Years' War. Yes, that Seven Years' War, which ended six years before Napoleon's birth. So, that part about their tactics needing to change? Yeah, well, not off to the greatest start. As their forces began to prepare for a siege of Mantua, one thing that was helping the Austrian forces was that Napoleon was actually stretched pretty thin across the entire northern peninsula. Napoleon was still dealing with small rebellious peasants in the rural provinces in the north, and the Directory, now trying to seize on Napoleon's momentum, ordered him to send troops down to the Papal States, modern-day Rome and the surrounding areas, to spread the revolution further south. He was also ordered to threaten Venice with war should they violate their neutrality by assisting the Austrians. 
With all of this under consideration, Napoleon knew that he would be severely outmanned when attempting to break Mantua, while also simultaneously conducting his campaigns down south in order to quote-unquote liberate the papal states. But if Napoleon wanted to end the War of the First Coalition, he knew that defeating all of Italy would be the only way to ensure peace for France. And so, at the metaphorical gates of Mantua in June of 1796, Napoleon began his push to achieve total victory. Which brings us to the end of our episode today. In our next two episodes, which will finally conclude Napoleon's first Italian campaign, we'll look at the battles that consisted of the Siege of Mantua and how Napoleon was able to finally win the protracted struggle there, which ended the Austrian control of northern Italy and left the gates open to Vienna. We'll talk about the southern campaign that led to the chaos in the Papal States and the peace that followed in Italy, including the fall of Venice, which ended over a thousand years of Venetian independence. It's a comprehensive campaign, I understand that, but I want to make sure we cover all we can, because the next year and a half are going to define not only the fate of Italy, but also lay the foundations for the next war, the War of the Second Coalition.